Welcome to another edition of Ecclesial Thoughts with your host, Youth Pastor Austin Meisner, here on KKTY Tiger Country Radio. Welcome to another episode of Ecclesial Thoughts. So glad you guys can join us tonight. As I record this right now, we are getting ready to prep for one of the biggest things to happen to Missouri in about 50 years. Today is February 2nd, 2020, the day in which we are going to watch the Chiefs play in the Super Bowl against the San Francisco 49ers and hopefully come home being Super Bowl champs. And so today's episode is even more uh, special because we are going to watch the Chiefs actually win, is my prediction, tonight. Now, as always, I love to give a shout-out to our sponsors for the show and the station, because without them, we would not be able to give Southwest Missouri all of our programming, as well as the internet. Uh, if you're not able to uh, listen in, you can always go online and listen if you are not with, have the Live 365 app. So, we would love to give a shout-out to our sponsors, Better Homes and Gardens Realty, Cards and Stripes Games, Troy's Workshop at troysworkshop.com. They do woodworking, efficient integrations, sound and security systems, DM graphics, and the Methodist Manor. Now, tonight, we are going to be discussing the doctrine of the sufficiency and necessity of Scripture. Now, these are two that have to be combined. Like, all scriptures are interwoven together. These two are necessarily tied together as one doctrine in and of itself. Now, you may be asking, what is the sufficiency and the necessity of scripture? Well, I'm going to provide you guys a definition given by Greg Allison in his book that we have been covering. And he says, sufficiency is an attribute of scripture whereby it provides everything that people need to be saved and everything that Christians need to please God fully. Necessity is an attribute of scripture whereby it is essential for knowing the way of salvation, for progressing in holiness, and for discerning God's will. Now, these two things are incredibly important because we have so many different sects of Christianity, such as Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Catholicism, Protestants, all say something about this. Now, the first three that I mentioned all have extra-biblical writings and or traditions that they say are equal to scripture. Well, what Greg Allison is saying here, and what I believe, is that scripture is the only thing we need to know God as fulfilled in those two definitions. So, let's dive into this kind of technical definition that I, I, I gave, and let's walk through it tonight. When we discuss the idea of sufficiency, it can covers really two main ideas. First off is salvation, and second off is pleasing God. As you saw in that definition I gave, it says sufficient is an attribute of Scripture whereby it provides everything that people need to be saved and everything that Christians need to please God fully. So there's pleasing God, 
or salvation and pleasing God. So let's take it from the top. So the first idea, sufficiency, it provides everything for salvation. As Romans 10, 13 through 17 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news! But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So this verse right here encapsulates the laying out of the doctrine in both ways, really. Uh, Hearing God's word is necessary for salvation, as pointed out most specifically in verse 17. So we see that uh, to please God fully means we are to glorify him, and to be saved glorifies him. And so that's why I say that this passage of scripture encapsulates both of them. But more specifically, when we say that the, the word of God is sufficient for everything in salvation, verse 17 says, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing from the word of Christ. And therefore, all the scriptures that we have to look at concerning salvation have to do with Jesus. Jesus gives us the way to salvation. He is the one who tells us to repent and look to the Son of Man for the forgiveness of sins. So, faith comes essentially from the words of Christ, which are Scripture. So, salvation. All Scripture is sufficient to lead us to salvation. We don't need anything else. We don't need extra-biblical documents. We don't need anything to tell us how to get saved, because anything that does tell us how to get truly saved is in effect, a paraphrase of Scripture. It is whether orally or whether it is in written form, it is copying Scripture. So if I am to tell somebody the way of salvation and I never reference a Scripture verse specifically, then that does not mean that they cannot be saved because I am paraphrasing the Scripture so that they can know it. If I was to speak in another language and 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 paraphrase the scriptures that is still scripture working and that scripture is what gives those people the ability to be saved so the second half of this idea of sufficiency is pleasing god so the 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 idea of pleasing god is shown throughout the entire bible that's the reason why we have the mosaic law it's the reason why there's 600 laws because God wanted to show how ridiculous the standards are to please him that we were to have faith in him because that is truly what makes him happy to to rely on him and to trust him so one of the best places to look though about his word being sufficient to uh, to enjoy God or to have let me rephrase that, not to enjoy God's will. Um, <sighs> please God fully. There we go. 
sorry, I, I had a brain fart there and was I had to go back and find my definition. To please God fully. So here we go. If we look at Psalms, which is awesome, the Psalms over and over and over again talk about how wonderful God's word is to obey. Psalm one forty seven eleven says, But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, and those who hope in his steadfast love. So here we can see if we if we're looking at it literally, uh, even in the figurative sense of, of which the psalm psalmist is trying to describe here, is that God delights in those who fear him, because that means they are to obey him. And we see earlier in the psalms, uh, or in, not in the psalms, later in the Proverbs, that the beginning of wisdom is fear of the Lord, because we know that he is the one who created us. So if we look back at another section of the psalm, such as Psalm 19 and verses 7 through 11, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey, and dripping of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is a great reward. So here we see Psalm 19 as an ode, a praise to God's word, and how great it is. And why would the scriptures uplift God's word if it was not something that inherently made him that some allowed us to please him? When we when we follow when we fear the Lord, when, when we understand that the rules of the Lord are true, that we should desire them like gold, those things please God. So we continuously see in the Old Testament that God's word is good for us. It is valuable. It pleases him because it instructs us in the ways that he wants us to be instructed. Now, if we were to jump to the New Testament, the Apostle Paul in, in 2 Timothy, in, in chapter 3, verses 15 through 17, it says, and how, far, and how from a childhood have you been acquainted with sacred writings, which were are able to make you wise for salvation, so there's the first half, through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be a complete equip for every good work. So Paul here is teaching us that everything we need to do, the good works of God, to please him, because good works do please God, everything that we need to do, the good works that God has commanded us, is in his word. And more specifically, when he is talking to Timothy here, he is saying that the Old Testament scriptures specifically point towards salvation and towards building up in Christ and building the, 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 the man up to do the good works of God. Because at this point, when Paul is writing this, uh, let me, it says in verse 15, You have been acquainted with the sacred writings. The New Testament had not yet been written. Therefore, what we have to know is that Paul is most likely 
and over uh, no he just is most likely referencing these Old Testament texts that point towards the knowledge of Jesus Christ and in these texts also is all this reproof for righteousness and all these great things and that it they lead us to be complete and equipped for every good work that God's commanded us so we see here in sufficiency that we it this idea of salvation and pleasing God is throughout the, the whole Bible. And therefore, when we read the Bible, as we should, these are the things that we should see. We should see the, the text of Scripture in light of salvation in Jesus Christ. The most important thing is salvation in Jesus Christ. Now, that's not saying every single verse is directly talking about Jesus. But the entire book is about Jesus, from Genesis to Revelation. We see the archetypes, the foreshadowing, the the, the future things, and, and texts like in Second Timothy 3 here bolster that argument that Old Testament texts were pointing towards Jesus. So, now that we've discussed a little bit of the sufficiency of Scripture, let's discuss the necessity of Scripture. The necessity of Scripture speaks to the idea that Scripture is the only way that we may come to know salvation either through the physical word or orally. Now, there are many people today who would argue that we do not have a loving God because not everybody has heard Scriptures that would lead them to salvation. So why would he condemn them to hell? But when we look at this doctrine, we know that, that that claim, that attack, has to fall short because Scripture is necessary. Even here, uh, when we were uh, taking a look at, oh, let let us let us see, Romans ten thirteen through seventeen, it says that you must hear the words of Christ to be saved. Not just any words of Christ, but the words of salvation. And so, for somebody to be saved, they must hear the gospel. What is the gospel if not the words of Christ? And you, and now that he has come, there is no this believing uh, in Romans one twenty that it has been revealed to us that there is a God that we cannot get to Jesus through natural theology. To get to Jesus, we must have explicit revelation from God so that we may know who he is. So the necessity of Scripture, again, speaks to the idea that Scripture is the only way we come to know salvation, either through the physical word or orally. So when we preach, when I paraphrase, and I don't, am not reading straight from a Bible or uh, anything like that, that is orally. And so God can use that word, he necessarily must use that word, to save. That is the the way that he has ordained Salvation happen is through the word hearing of the word, or in the case of somebody who is deaf, the reading the physical word, or hearing it through sign language, which would again I would say would be a form of oral uh, transmission. So both Jesus and Peter though talk about how Scripture is necessary in our lives for this. So Jesus in Matthew four four. When he is being tempted by Satan, says this. Or here's the exchange, just so you guys have the whole thing. Um, in verse three, Satan says, "And the tempter came to him and said, 
If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Or in some of your older verses, versions, it might say that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now what's the idea here? Well, first off, we must realize that Jesus himself here is quoting the Old Testament. This is not just him making something on the spot. This is Deuteronomy 8.3. This, this is from the Pentateuch. This is from the law that God gave to Moses. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So, even in this trial of life and death against Satan, Jesus says, I would much rather live by the word of God rather than bread, because the word of God leads me to better things. The word of God sustains me. Bread will eventually leave me hungry. The word of God never leaves me empty. If we were to move on, one of the foremost disciples of Jesus, Peter, in his epistle, 1 Peter chapter 2, it says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now, as a dad, and soon to be a dad of two, I can easily say that this this passage is 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 trying to get in our brain this idea that babies need milk, right? And therefore, just like that, we must have the pure spiritual milk. Now, what is that? Well, I would contest that the pure spiritual milk is scripture. For nothing else teaches us about God. All pastors, even the, the the terrible ones, when they are trying to teach, what they do is they are taking a, a, a passage of scripture and exegeting, or eisegeting, depending on what they're doing, um, and I'm not giving credence to eisegesis, don't hear that, but whether it's exegesis or eisegesis, they are taking a text and then trying to explain it for better or for worse. That is the spiritual milk. They must derive their teaching from the Bible. So because of these two reasons, because Jesus says that we must live by the every word of God, and only that, and Peter is comparing that to the, the new milk which babies must have instead of solid food, these reasons make it imperative that whether it's our sermons, whether it's our devotionals, our worship, all of it should be rooted in a clear understanding of the scripture. This is why certain popular Christian songs sometimes can rub people the wrong way, because at first glance, they might not seem very scriptural. So when we're discussing things, and, and I'll just go out, go out and say it, uh, reckless love, and 99% of it is a great song. And that's a lot of it. And you'd be like, well, yeah, we can play it. But that 1%, that framing, the framing reference of saying that God's love is reckless, you don't get anywhere in Scripture. 
leaving the 99 to find the one if you are only human is wrecked it isn't really even reckless that was what was expected but there's risk involved in that but jesus jesus came to accomplish the father's will jesus doesn't risk anything so if our theology and our, our understanding of the word of god is correct then that song can sometimes have this issue and so the you know people might think that i'm a snob or the other people who are very puritanical in their ideas of worship music, but they are just simply trying to follow the faith that they believe in, because anything that does not proceed from faith is sin. I mean, there's churches that only believe that you can sing psalms in worship. Now, I'm not going to say they're right or wrong. I know that I do not fall into that category as I have studied the subject, and it hasn't been a ton, but I, I think Paul's exhortation... Uh, to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs is not a delineation of the different types of psalms, but I think it is literally discussing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs as, as of different categories. Uh, Paul's writings have a lot of hymns uh, that have that were in the first century, and so I think it would be great to to sing those things. The doxology, for instance, or the high Christology of Colossians chapter 1. Great things. So everything that we do must come from a stance in Scripture and not just this random idea. So that is, in essence, a good scriptural look at the doctrine from a biblical perspective. So now we can kind of look at something that's happened in church history that is incredibly related to this doctrine. And that is the idea in the Reformation of sola scriptura. And we've talked about this multiple times already. And I would hazard a guess that we are going to continue to talk about it till we are out of the doctrine of the scriptures. Because the, the idea of sola scriptura is imperative to the Protestant church today. It's directly linked to where we're at. To quote Allison in his book, it says, Scripture and Scripture alone completely equips people for knowing God and fully doing His will. And I want to make this very clear. This is not to downplay the role of the Holy Spirit and His movement, but what it does mean is that in regards to Scripture and in regards to the Holy Spirit, they must work together. The Holy Spirit and Scripture must work together. You cannot have only the Spirit denying Scripture or Scripture denying the Spirit. Because something's out of whack there. When one of them says one thing, they're going to work synergistically together. So when we hear people claim to be doing things out of the Holy Spirit and it's prompting, it must be checked against the Word of God. When they say, I, I was told I need to go and pray for this person to be healed. Okay. That's fine if you feel that that's what the Holy Spirit has called you to. Now, where can we get this idea in Scripture that we are told to lay hands and pray? There's, there's definitely some different Scriptures that could come to mind. Right? And that must be everything. So whether it's 
how we conduct a worship service, whether that's how we preach the Bible, how we teach the Bible, how we do anything must and should be placed up against the standards of Scripture. Major things now, so we've, we've talked about those three big things, so, so let's talk about some major things we need to avoid with this idea of the necessity and sufficiency of Scripture. What we need to watch out for is the neglect or dismissal of the Word of God when we emphasize the Spirit. So as I already kind of mentioned, we cannot place the Spirit's prompting above the codified Word. The Spirit will never lead you to do something in direct opposition to the Word of God. So if Scripture says something, it is go- going. the Spirit is only going to reinforce that. It is never going to tell you to do something different. For as we discussed last week, if Scripture is authoritative, then the correct understanding of it must always come first. So when the Spirit tells us to do something, it's going to come into conjunction with Scripture because Scripture is authoritative. And if it's authoritative, that means we always do what Scripture tells us before the Spirit. Something else we need to worry about. We should not emphasize the Word of God to the neglect or dismissal of the Spirit. So like I said, these things work in conjunction. We cannot just read the Bible as a theology textbook or some dusty old manual to try to get to go, get closer to God and not have the heartbeat of the Spirit, the lifeblood of the Spirit involved. Because you, one of the foremost New Testament professors is an atheist. He does not believe. He believes that the, the Bible is a great historical book, but is, is, does, he doesn't have the Spirit in him. He reads the words of Jesus, and and his his heart is hard. His heart is hard. So, for the Spirit is what makes us alive. When we read the Scriptures, it's what gets us going. It's what makes us excited. It most makes us have our heart of stone and turn into a heart of flesh. Is the Spirit of God, and if we don't have the Spirit, if we are ignoring the Spirit and just trying to hold up and prop up the Scriptures, then we become just like the Pharisees obeying useless laws, obeying useless things that the Bible commands, because if we don't have the Spirit, they're not worth anything. Just as today, we must always have the Spirit of the law, as well as the law, merged together. At a very crude analogy. So lastly, we must watch out for permitting some other source, rather than Scripture, as the supreme authority. So things such as, and I'm just going to say this because this is attacked a lot, things such as creeds and confessions, like the Apostles' Creed, the, the Westminster Confession of Faith, these things are good. Why are they good, though? Because they were derived from Scripture. It's like taking a theology textbook, reading it. Why is that theology textbook good? Because it was all derived from the Scripture, not just man. And Scripture is what gives it authority. Not the book authority, but gives the words in that book authority. Because all of the that book and its explanation is derived from Scripture. So things that would be wrong, though, things like... The Pearl of Grace Price, the Book of Mormon, um, any traditions 
that are said to have salvific power, those would be wrong, and those would not match up to Scripture. So, uh, a quick final word about the practicality of this doctrine. Let us not refuse, or let us refuse to go beyond Scripture. So no prophecy or personal revelation from God are to be placed on a level equal to Scripture and authority. So let's say you're told to go do something, but the Bible says you shouldn't do that. Let's say it's a prohibitive command, and God says, yes, like you, you say that the Holy Spirit's saying, yes, you should go um, have underage sex. Well, the Bible very clearly says, or not underage sex, but premarital sex, um, that the Bible very clearly says that no, that is not what sex was meant for. Let us go, let us say that the Bible told you to disobey a civil authority in a petty manner, not in a life and death or a moral issue. Well, the Bible says we are to obey the ruling authorities, not to uh, disobey them. So we must all, always allow the scriptures to define the visions and not our visions to define scripture. So, for example, you can never force your revelation on someone else unless it completely and utterly lines up with the teachings of scripture. So if you're studying scripture and this revelation, not a vision or anything, but a revelation of what this means... You can't force that onto somebody unless that's that revelation is 100% backed up by Scripture. So, the second thing in enacting this doctrine would be that we must have Scripture in our daily lives. We must have it. We have such a privilege nowadays that the whole first and many of the centuries after that did not have of even having the completed scriptures for the congregation to even view. It was only in the hands of the magisterium or in the, the head honchos of the church. So for you to have the entire Bible and not read it or to not look at it is a complete and utter waste of what God has given you. And therefore, because it's sufficient, because it's necessary, we should take every diligent possibility so that we can please God. Well, I thank you guys for allowing uh, another week to go by. Hopefully this this podcast is received on Wednesday night and then l- later on Thursday with a great and resounding Chiefs victory. And I hope that God blesses you during this week. And I can't wait to record the next episode and hear from you guys.